Heads up! Cause you are in the hoodwood. I'm the Black Bandit, KJ Green, welcome you to another edition of Sports Hoodwood. Coming up in this edition, NBA has created a new in-season tournament. Will it matter? Will anybody really care? Will it be watched? Break everything down in an in-depth investigation. Would a relegation and promotion style work in college football? See some ideas. Throw some out to you in another Hoodwood Investigates. Hoodwood Summer Camps conclude with the Western Preview, AFC West and the NFC West. The Hoodwood Hot Five, more quick takes, more takes to give you shake stick at. I'm all over the place this week. We have Fat Dap, Head Slap, and the final one from the Wood. Fast this week, so put your crash helmet on, open your seatbelts, and get ready. Let's go. KJ Green, welcome you back to another edition of Sports from the Hoodwood. Now, of course, if you're watching on YouTube, greetings. If you're listening on various podcast platforms, no matter where you are around the world, I send you my blessings and greetings. And I thank you so much for your patronage. We'll get into in-depth of how you can contact the show and how you can, other places that you can watch and listen to the show at the end of the show. Let's start off with our first topic of the edition and the NBA, one of the most popular uh, venues for pro basketball, considered the elite of the creme de la creme of world basketball, is now deciding that they want to create an in-season tournament. It's not enough to play 82 games from mid-October to late, or I should say mid-April, and then possibly play another two more months of playoffs, you now have the added pressure, or if you want to call it, of a, a six-week in-season tournament. Now, if this sounds confusing to you, it sounded confusing to me, but it is all the brainchild of NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, who, by his own admission, has long been fascinated with European soccer and the in-season tournaments that they have. I mean, everyone knows, I, mean, I should say everyone knows, most sporting folks know about the different in-season cups that European soccer has. You know, the UEFA, the UEFA Champions League, and the various in-season leagues that are uh, cups or tournaments that are not necessarily germane to the particular leagues that these soccer teams play in, but are still 
knockout tournaments or group stages that are still very much coveted. And everyone uh, knows about the, the famed Man City treble that they won the Premier League, which is the, 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 the league they're in, that the team, the club is based in. The, um, I believe it's the, Euro, it's the uh, I know it's the European Cup, I believe it is, the Great Britain Cup, I have to look that up. But the three cups and the UFA, UEFA Champions League, Man City won all three. And it's a rare treble to be able to claim the league championship and then win the two separate European tournaments. Now, Adam Silver, seeing this and trying to capitalize on the continually growing popularity of the NBA, not only in the United States and Canada, but around the world, trying to garner interest in an early season tournament, figuring that they will try to steal some viewers that are watching college football in the NFL in November to see if they'd be interested in this group stage, then knockout tournament. Now, the teams are divided up into pods. Um, six different groups, kind of like mini divisions that were drawn um, based on the standings of the previous year. So they would try to have all first place teams in one cup, all the second place teams in another, all the third place teams, and so on. So they picked by lots. So they picked a division based on first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and so on. So they tried to make it balanced and even. So the teams, which you should see on the graphic here coming up, for those who are not seeing it, I'll relay it off. The Group A has the Sixers, Cavs, Hawks, Pacers, and Pistons. Suspiciously sounds like the, the Eastern Division Center, Eastern Conference Central, but that's neither here nor there. You have the Bucks, Knicks, Heat, Wizards, and Hornets in another group. The Celtics, Nets, Raptors, Bulls, and Magic in Group C. Uh, Memphis, Phoenix, the LA Lakers, the Utah Jazz, Portland, Portland Trailblazers in Group D. Denver Nuggets, the Clippers, the New Orleans Pelicans, Dallas Mavericks, and Houston Rockets in Group E. Group F has Sacramento, Golden State, Minnesota, Oklahoma City, and San Antonio. Basically, these groups have their play, have their their um, their own division. They play each other home and home. Once that's done, then the winners of these groups move on to a knockout style tournament, which culminates in a championship game in Las Vegas that would be in uh, December. The winner, the winning team of this tournament, splits $500,000. Uh, Runners-up get $200,000, and the losing players of the semifinals get $100,000, and losing players in the quarters get $50,000. So it's not big, big money on the string, but it'd be a nice extra paycheck for some of these players. Now, they've scheduled 80 games for each team. Now, you say, well, wait a minute, KJ. Don't the NBA play 82 games? Yes, they play 82 games. But what they're going to do is they have built into the schedule those extra two games for teams that have advanced through the group stage and into the semifinals and finals. So those extra two games will be part of their schedule. 
two teams will end up actually playing 83 games. That 83rd game, while will be connect, can, will not be uh, counted toward the regular season standings. All the stats will count toward um, will actually count toward uh, the uh, compilation of points and stats that in that regard. I looked at it and I studied it some, and I, I'm as as big a basketball junkie as I am. I love the college game. I live for the college game. I get into the pros once it once the year the calendar turns, and kind of after the All Star break. But I think it's I, I I honestly think it's too much. I think it's too much for uh, for the regular casual fan to follow. Most pro basketball fans don't even really start getting unless you're a hardcore basketball junkie which I know a lot of, there are some that you know in pro cities follow their team religiously from first tip to the end of the season but the regular fan to be honest doesn't start paying attention to the NBA seriously till Christmas we have a full Christmas set slate of games from you know the noon game where the Knicks usually play to usually the 10:30 game, those are, that's usually when the NBA season starts to lock in. I mean the NFL is trying to kind of weasel in on Christmas and play a handful of games themselves, but NBA still starts it starts to bloom more once Christmas starts, once Christmas hits those those slate of games. Adam Silver is trying to merge the European style of knockout tournaments and try to build it into the NBA, in the NBA schedule. He did hit a gold mine when he did the play-in games. I think the play-in games are wonderful for the game. You have, you know, the top six teams guaranteed playoff spots. Seven through ten, you're going to, you know, if you want a playoff spot, you're going to fight your way through. And that gives teams who are seated ninth and tenth a real shot at, at making the playoffs. Play your way into the playoffs. I love it. But this tournament in the early part of the season, it serves no purpose. I mean, yeah, you're trying to win a championship or some sort of title. But are you going to really raise a banner <laughs> in your arena for winning a midseason tournament? Is anybody really going to care about this? I mean, being a sports journalist, I'll probably keep a little bit, pay attention to it on the side. But am I going to follow it religiously? Not unless my Timberwolves get to the semifinals. Then I might pay a little bit more attention. But still, the team that wins this tournament, are they considered a favorite for the playoffs? Are they considered... But it's a one-game knockout style. Sort of like the NCAA. You're, you're, you're trying to merge... Soccer format tournaments with kind of the one and done of the NCAA. I just think it's a recipe for disaster. And I, I don't say disaster. I don't think that teams or fans are really going to care. Now, if you tie a playoff berth to this, you'd be damn sure that you're going to have some teams that are going to fight for this. If you put this tournament in March and say, okay... These teams that are possible also rans will dangle a carrot of a playoff berth or a guaranteed 10 seed where you're guaranteed to be in the playoffs. 
you might have a few teams play a little harder for that. You think a half a million dollar check, you know, to be divided, you know, per player is going, you know, every team getting a half million dollar check is going to incentivize them in November. You know, I, I can't see it happening. It's something that maybe once it starts to, you know, take hold, you have some sort of tradition. You call it, said NBA call it called the Stern Cup or something like that. I don't know. You're still asking a lot for something that is still not really well understood by the sporting populace. It's not something that is tradition laden. And I know a lot of things take a while to get to take hold, but the playing tournament, you know, after two, three years has taken hold and people like that that format. They like the way that, that, that is structured. Can the NBA strike gold a second time? It's anybody's guess. Now let's take our first time out of the day, come back and look at college football. No, I'm not gonna talk about realignment. I promise you, I promise you. Well, it's kinda, kinda have something to do with realignment. And the concept of a possible relegation or promotion could this type of system work in college football and make it more interesting and palatable to a number of casual fans? Sportsman comes back at you after this. Is today your last day on Earth because you are being deployed to space tomorrow? Have you just turned 18 and you're ready to get out of your parents' house? Has your granddaughter gotten her boyfriend pregnant? Whatever your reason, you need us at GottaGetMarriedNow.com. We specialize in last-minute weddings. Active duty, military veterans and retired discounts are available. Visit us at GottaGetMarriedNow.com. starting the on Labor Day weekend, which is in three weeks. The teams that are in contention for the national championship are usual who's who, usual suspects, defending champion, two-time, I should say, defending national champion Georgia. Can they make it a three-peat? It's anybody's guess. We'll preview some more of college football next week. But looking at the landscape of college football... There are, you know, your haves, your have-nots, you know, <laughs> UMass and UConn, those are some pretty sorry teams. But you have some of the nouveau riche, like my, my beloved Bearcats, who, though they had a down year at 9-4, and four, at nine and four, but still have 
push their way into the Big 12 and, and are seeking some modicum of respectability. I read some information, came across my desk the other day, that I saw and was very interested, I say fascinated by the possibility of. Now, I'll set this all up. Now, if you've ever paid attention to European soccer, you have, especially the Premier League. Premier League has 20 teams in it. Every year you have, you're playing for the team that finishes with the most points, wins the Premier League Cup. There's no playoffs or anything like that. But you have the team that finishes first at the top of the standings with the most points at the end of the 38-game season is a Premier League champion. Now, you also have the teams that finish not only the first, second, and third is the, uh, the into the Champions League. You also have the Europa League, and you have, I guess, like two or three leagues that, uh, championship, like kind of playoff or tournament leagues that teams can qualify for if they finish in the top five or six. Now, the top, the, you have the top six teams who have something to play for, and you also have the teams at the bottom trying to avoid being as is known as relegated. Now, a team that finishes 18th, 19th, or 20th are kicked, basically kicked out of the Premier League, and three teams from the Championship League, which is the league right below the Premier League, are promoted. Now, being promoted to the Premier League is a financial windfall for some of these teams. You say with the uh, Premier League, you have... Uh, promotions and relegations. The top five to four teams are into the European Champions League, the Uf UEFA Champions League. Uh, Man City, who won the Premier League, Arsenal, Man United, and Newcastle United will be playing in a group stage. Similar, and you know, I, I mentioned it in the um, previous segment about about the European style tournaments that the NBA is doing the type of tournament like this. So the champion, you have the champion of the Premier League, the Champions League, the top four teams in the Europa League, which three teams, uh, two teams qualify for that, uh, and the Europa Conference League, which, like I said, those are kind of awards or, or you know, incentives for the top teams. Now you have the bottom teams that are trying or will get sent off. The teams that finish 18th, 19th, and 20th are sent down to the Champion League, which uh, in the 23 season was Leeds United, Southampton, and Leicester City. You remember Leicester City won the Premier League just a couple of years ago, but they've fallen so far off the pace that they are being sent down. Now you have Burnley, Sheffield United, Luton Town, who were promoted from the Champions League. Now this is a windfall of literally hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, that has made a financial cost for a team being promoted and being relegated as literally in the the you know like I said the hundreds of millions of dollars. Now I bring this all up in context because. The there has been, like I said, came across my desk and I was looking at this. Very interesting, a series of uh, a set of divisions um, for college football to have as many as five or six divisions. 
Premier Championship, League One, League Two, and then Regional. The teams that finish in, in the Premier Team in Premier Tier, you have sixteen teams in Premier, and then twenty each in the Championship, League One and League Two. As I'll show you on the graphic here, the Premier League or division would be the one that would play for the national championship. The 12 team, 12 out of 16 teams in this division would be playing to determine the national champion. They would be playing, I would figure, a series of games. Now, the the problem here is, do premier teams play just premier teams? And then, you know, championship teams play championship and so forth. Once you have that determination, you have 12 teams in play for a national championship. The bottom four teams that don't make the, the, the national championship tournament get relegated to the championship league. And the top four teams that are playing in the championship are playing to be promoted to the Premier League. You win your championship division, you're promoted. Now, I'm looking at this and I'm seeing all sorts of holes and everything like that. Who do you who, how do you determine what team plays in what division? You know, you have, of course, the premier teams. I mean your Georgias, your Ohio States, your Alabamas, your Michigans, your Ohio States, and so forth. But you have other teams that are fringe. Now looking at this chart, you have TCU. Now TCU played in, in the national championship last year. Okay, but they're not a team that's been a national contender for the last five or ten years. My beloved Bearcats, they have in this graphic as League One. They won, they played in the national semifinals two years ago. They have won over the last five years, they won 56 games. But you consider them a third tier league, league team? Why is team are teams like Pitt and Wake Forest in the championship league? Why is Tulane that high up? Why 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 is Maryland? What makes some of these teams better than others? Who determines what team is in what division? And then when you have these teams who are promoted or relegated. What's the motivation for some of these teams when they know that they've been relegated? You know, you are getting revenue streams that are going to be hurt going forward for a team that's in the regional division that has nothing to play for, playing a 6-6. Six and six. And it's like the top two, the way they're looking at it is like a team would take literally, say you have a school in the re in the in the regional division. That team has no chance of playing for a national championship. I'm not saying that a team now has a team chance of playing a national championship. A UConn, a UMass, Iowa, uh, Indiana, Ohio, that sort of team. Those teams aren't gonna play for a national championship, not in the foreseeable future. But what's to prevent a team from catching lightning in a bottle? like my Bearcats did in 21 when they ran the table, finished 13-0, and were the only undefeated team in the nation 
and literally play their way into the four-team college playoff. I think teams like a Cincinnati with a 12-team playoff can e more easily play their way into something like that. When you have something like this with promotion and relegation, I don't think it'll work. I think that it would lock a certain number of teams into a permanent every year playing in, the, in contention for the national championship whatever ever having to worry about being you know being challenged their elite status would be cemented and lesser teams and i'm not calling my bearcats a lesser team but teams that can catch a lightning in a bottle just so often the chances of them being able to do that get exponentially harder and like i said you have teams in this lower tier division that they have absolutely no chance in playing for a national championship or being in a premier division because four years, there are five conferences. Somebody who's on one of the lower tiers will have no shot at, you know, as a, you know, going to one of these premier lower, lower tier teams as a freshman can only hope to get to a championship level as a senior if everything goes right and they're promoted every year. Promotion and relegation for college sports, I just can't see that working right. You don't have the type of financial wherewithal for some of these schools to make something like this happen. So you would have a permanent underclass of schools. Not like it's not already that way now. I mean, it's getting to the point where you're going to have the haves and the have-nots. And I'm waiting for a group of these schools, these rich financially set schools to break off from the NCAA and the college football control and make their own division and have their own say, we're the national champions. The promotion and relegation, while it's an interesting concept, still has a lot of holes to work out. Let's take another time out, come back with the final Hoodwood NFL Summer Camp. We go west. Go west, young man. Go West, the uh, 90s band I like. But we will go West and look at the AFC and NFC Western Division. Sports in the Hoodwood rolls on after this.
listening to Sports from the Hoodwood, CNN's foremost location for the most honest insight, thorough analysis, and unfiltered opinion on the world of sports. Now, once again, here's the man of the hour, After Hours, your host, KJ Green. You're back in the Hoodwood. My name is KJ Green, and as the kids are starting to head back to school, that means the end of summer camp. So we're going to wrap up. Our Hoodwood goes to NFL summer camp with our Western Division previews. I've been doing both the AFC and NFC going one direction to the other. Now we're going to finish up with the Western Divisions. We'll start off with the AFC West and the defending Super Bowl champs, the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, the Chiefs are riding high after regaining their AFC title from the Bengals, their third AFC crown in four years, and holding off a determined Eagles squad to claim their second title in that same period. Patrick Mahomes showed that he could win a title without Tyreek Hill, but now we can see if he can say the same without Eric Bieniemy. His offensive coordinator has moved laterally from the Chiefs to Washington. Now, Andy Reid is getting up there in years, but he's still a dominating enough presence to keep the champs near the top. Finishing second, we have the Los Angeles Chargers, who finished 10-7 last year and lost the AFC wildcard game to Jacksonville. Now, the Chargers found another creative way to crumble late, gaffling up a 27-0 lead to the nascent Jags is especially galling, and it's a real surprise that Brandon Staley was able to keep his job after that choke job. Nevertheless, the Chargers are still a decent team on both sides of the ball. Joey Bosa roaming the linebacker perimeter and Justin Herbert leading the offense. They are flawed, but decent. Can they be a playoff team again? Sure. Can they push the Chiefs for AFC West dominance? They'll keep them honest. Can they be an AFC powerhouse? <laughs> the jury's still out on that one. Finishing third in the uh, AFC West, according to the Hoodwood predictions, will be the Denver Broncos. They finished 5-12 last year, fourth place in the AFC West, and it couldn't get any worse for the Broncos. I mean, let's be honest. They were flat-out terrible. Russell Wilson looked lost on offense, which was more or less punchless, and no one feared their defense by any stretch of the imagination. It was a real surprise they were able to land Sean Payton. Now, a championship pedigree coach that does seem eager to prove that he can do it again with a different quarterback, this time being Russell Wilson as opposed to Drew Brees. Will this get them out of the AFC West basement? Nah, probably. They will play better than they did last year, but will it show in the standings? The jury, a game like that, is still out. Bringing up the rear in the AFC West, I have the Las Vegas Raiders. They finished 6-11 last year, third in the West division, and I've made no secret of my disdain for Josh McDaniels. I don't like him as a coach. I think he's over, horribly overmatched. Now, McDaniel passes off as a Chucky Gruden clone who doesn't have the pedigree of winning, and the Raiders are going to suffer for it. Now, McDaniels ran off Derek Carr, and now Jimmy Garoppolo heads the offense. And he, for once, may not have to look over his shoulder at a coming-on quarterback or an incumbent that he's trying to replace. Now, the Raiders have the pieces, but their coaching may be what dooms them. Now, let's shift over to the NFC, take a look at my predictions for that division in that conference. We'll start off with the San Francisco 49ers, who were 13-4 last year, lost to Philadelphia in the NFC Championship. Now, the Niners were cruising along and looked to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Eagles in the NFC Championship until their quarterback went from bad to worse to 
untenable in about a quarter and a half in the NFC title game. Trey Lance and Brock Purdy both were banged up, and the Niners got roughed up by a much tougher Eagle squad. Now, the Niners should have no real problem dominating the NFC West, an otherwise nondescript vision, as long as the offensive pieces, Christian McCaffrey, Debo Samuel, etc., etc., George Kittle, as long as they stay healthy, the 49ers should have their way in the division and should have no problem rolling back to the playoffs, and a deep run is not out of the question. Finishing second in the NFC West, I have the Seattle Seahawks. They were 9-8 last year and lost to San Francisco in the wildcard round. Now, the comeback story of Geno Smith was a feel-good story for the ages. They rolled Geno Smith to a wholly unexpected wildcard berth where they were steamrolled by the Niners, as expected. You wonder if Geno Smith was a flash in the pan? Or does Pete Carroll really have that magic wand to be a quarterback whisperer and get the most out of otherwise no-account quarterbacks? Now, the Seahawks are better than the other teams that are below them in the division, but they're nowhere close to being able to challenge for any kind of NFC West superiority. Now, finishing third, I have the Los Angeles Rams. They were 5-12 last year and finished third in the NFC West. Start with a frightening opening night evisceration by the Bills, and besides a pair of squeak-out September wins and a Christmas beatdown of the equally sorry Broncos, the 2022 season was an otherwise forgettable season for the defending Super Bowl champs. Everybody seemed to get hurt, and everybody wanted to seem to take a piece out of the Rams' butt, and they took one loss after another after another. Matthew Stafford tried like a scout for a while until he got hurt, and they were turning to everybody and their brother to try to pilot the ship. They even turned to Baker Mayfield. <laughs> when he played, I was like, is he still in this league? But he at least got him one win, but that was pretty much all that they had. Now, Stafford seems like he's right now he's more of a player just happy to ride out his chip win to a bust in Canton. Sean McVay went from genius to clueless in a matter of months, and there are not a lot of ready-made answers past Cooper Cup. Stafford can only connect with him so many times. Finishing fourth in the NFC West, I had the Arizona Cardinals. They were 4-13 last year. Now, the bullies always beat up the little boy, and the little boy then can kick his dog. The only reason the Rams aren't in the basement in this division, in my predictions, is because of the hot mess the Cardinals have become. Kyler Murray went from wonderkind to dog wonder and wondering where it all went wrong. Jonathan Gannon is a rookie coach, and he's going to have a long season trying to sort things out in the desert. And the cards aren't scaring anyone on either side of the ball. And they'll be lucky to match the four wins that they struggled to get last year. And there we have it. We will take our final timeout and come back with the Hoodwood High Five. Fat dab and head slap. And the final word from the Hood. Sports from the Hoodwood rolls down the home stretch. This. I'm actor Rajim A. Gross. Some of the studios would like to scan our images and only pay us for one day's worth of work and be able to use our likenesses, our voices, our mannerisms as computer generated characters, not only in the movie that we might be filming in, but in all future films as well that's not fair. And I thank the SAG board members that are fighting 
for my rights as an actor to work on a union film. So I just want to say standing in complete solidarity with everyone. Thank you. Commentary, insight, and opinions on the world of sports. Here now, live in living color, black by popular demand. Your host, KJ Green. Rounding third and headed for home here in the Hoodwood. Let's finish up strong with the Hoodwood Hot Five, Fat Dab and Head Slap, and the final word from the Wood. We continue with quick takes for the Hoodwood Hot Five. For at least one more week, let's go to what I see here and there in the Hoodwood. First story comes across my desk in the Hoodwood Hot Five. Vladko and Donovsky. cannot pronounce that man's name, but it doesn't matter. He's out. The U.S. Women's National Coach, despite a 51-5-9 record, but his record in major tournaments was just a part three, three, two, and five, and you figured after the women fell flat in the Women's World Cup down under. Yeah, he is hot. His seat got real hot. And Andonofsky stepped down as U.S. Women's National Team coach on Thursday. The resources confirmed this to ESPN. And the search will be on for a new women's coach now. Whoever steps into this is going to have big, big, big shoes to fill and big expectations. Anything less than a goal in the 24 Olympics in Paris and another Women's World Cup in 27 will not be accepted or not be tolerated. Whoever's coaching is going to have really, really big, big shoes to fill and really big expectations to uh, fulfill. Our second topic in the Hoodwood Hot Five. Now, I watched the movie The Blind Side. You know, it had Sandra Bullock in it and uh, Tim McGraw playing the the, uh, the Tui family who, um, according to the story, adopted Michael Orr, who was from the hard, hard streets of Memphis, and brought him into their home and Ray and... Uh, he played football for a prestigious private school and then ended up playing for Ole Miss. The story was cute, even though I've never been a fan of supposedly, you know, the white family saving the black kid from poverty and, and making him into something. I always thought it was kind of hokey and hammy, but it was a kind of a cute story. Now the word is coming out that Michael Orr was never adopted by the Tui family. The Tui family just had guardianship of him and reaped his untold millions that he garnered when he became a top draft choice of the Baltimore Ravens. It's 
the cynic in me is saying, are you surprised? But then there are, think, there are some people that are saying, you know, there's a lot more than meets the eye. Michael Orr had a falling out with the Tuies. It's just a very messy situation. In any case, I'm not going to be able to look at the blind side ever the same way again because it's just, I don't know. It just, it just seems, the whole situation just seemed really, really just kind of, it just gave me an icky feeling about it. I mean, Michael Orr being a good player, being a great offensive lineman, you know, playing and starring at Ole Miss, being a top draft of the Baltimore Ravens, playing a, a, a good serviceable career. But the whole thing of where he came from, you know, growing up on the hard streets of Memphis and then being, quote unquote, saved by this rich family, just it just makes, makes my stomach hurt. Uh, third topic in the Hoodwood Hot Five is the question, is Royal Stadium soon to be on the outs? Now, the Royals have played in the Truman, part of the Truman Sports Complex in suburban Kansas City for the last 50 plus years. The Royal Stadium is just adjacent to Arrowhead Stadium where the Kansas City Chiefs play. But there is talks that the Royals could be moving from the suburbs of Kansas City downtown closer to the T-Mobile Center in downtown Kansas City near the uh, Power and Light District, one of the uh, more Tony areas of the KC Mo area. The Royal Stadium, which has long been considered one of the uh, jewels of Major League Baseball, doesn't have the luxury boxes and other amenities that so many teams just want for their, their, their stadium. And Kansas City has long wanted the Royals to be closer to town. Now, Royal Stadium, I've always said, was a beautiful stadium. I say beautiful stadium, plastic. When they put grass in it, they made a great stadium even better. The Royals have played in Royal Stadium, Kauffman Stadium, whatever way you want to call it, since 1973. Could they be on the move, not out of Kansas City, but to a new location? It's anybody's guess. Our fourth topic in the Hoodwood Hot Five is regarding MLS. And Messi! Leo Messi has had six games, six uh, uh, caps in the um, six appearances in the in MLS since joining Inter Miami last month. Of course, everybody knows how he sells out stadiums and everything. Leo Messi has nine goals in six MLS games. Is he too good for the MLS? Is he that good? Or is he making the MLS look bad because he's that good? I mean, Leo Messi is 36, so he has a lot of soccer miles on him. But you wonder, is the MLS competition that janky where Leo Messi is just having a field day playing with overmatch and kind of in awe opponents? I remember when Wayne Rooney came over to DC United, everybody's like, oh, Wayne Rooney's going to dominate. He's going to... And he really didn't do that much. And a lot of people thought Leo Messi was going to be the same way. He's proving a lot of people wrong. And he's pushing Inter-Miami fast up the table. Can they make the playoffs? Make a late, desperate push for the playoffs? I think it may, may have gotten to the team a little too late to do that. But it's anybody's guess. 
Our final topic in the Hoodwood Hot Five is the increasing drama between James Harden of the 76ers and, and their GM, Daryl Morey. Now, Harden and Morey were once a pair in Houston. They had a falling out there, but were reunited when the uh, bearded shooting guard was traded from the Nets to the Sixers in the Penn Simmons trade. Morey pushed to get Harden, but now Harden, in one of his basketball camps, directly and openly called Daryl Morey a liar for not renegotiating his contract. This is a rather silly feud, to be honest. James Harden has made untold amount of money. Daryl Morey is trying to build a championship team in the Sixers, and their window, while open for a championship run, has not panned out. And many people wonder, will they trade Joel Embiid or James Harden, if not both. The feud between these two is going to get a lot worse before it gets any better. Stay tuned. That's my high five. What's yours? Now let's look at our fat dap and head slap of the week. Now, our fat dap it has a little bit of a backstory to it. Now, KJ, Kevin Joseph, I was named after my mother's only brother, Kevin. His name is Kevin. My daughter, my oldest daughter, Princess Katie, her initials, were, until she got married, were the same as mine, KJG. So there is some sort of connotation and makes sense about naming part someone after or having the same initials. And the initials were her mother's idea. They weren't mine. But anyway, super fan, you want to call it a dedicated fan, Giuseppe Mancuso was in attendance at a recent Dodgers game and was chattering with Los Angeles Dodgers outfielder Mookie Betts. And he says, Mancuso says to Betts, Hey, if you hit a home run, I'll name my soon-to-be-born daughter, I guess he knew he was going to be daughter, the middle name, Mookie, if he hit a home run. Betts kind of said, yeah, 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 if you're going to do that. But he kind of chuckled about it. But sure enough, Betts hit a home run. Go figure. So he rounds the bases. And the player, who was adjacent to the Dodgers dugout, daps up Mancuso. And you figure, yeah, you're going to name your daughter after me. Uh, yeah, middle name. Yeah, okay. Picture, please. I'm happy to present Francesca Muki Mancuso. Giuseppe held up his end of the bet. I don't know how he was able to talk the mother into it. But at 4.50 on the 7th of August, Francesca Muki Mancuso made her debut. The man held his end of the bet. And, and I saw this article, I saw the actual tweet from Muki Betts. He talked about it and he was just blown away. And after, after it happened and Muki Betts was... I mean, over the moon about it. And he was like, 
you know, he's a man of his word, you know, one of the coolest names. Mookie's given name is Marcus Lynn Betts, but his, his nickname came from the basketball player Mookie Blaylock. And I always thought it was just one of those things that, you know, Mookie was just a kind of a funny name, a nickname for, for a person. But to name and give your daughter the nickname, uh, the middle name, not a nickname, a middle name of Mookie. That dap to Giuseppe Mancuso. Giuseppe, that's just a cool name. I wonder why I like that name. Giuseppe is Italian for Joseph, my middle name. <laughs> I had to make a connection there somewhere, but fat dab to Giuseppe Mancuso and Mookie Betts. Mookie Betts for hitting the home run and Mancuso for paying off the bet in spades. You gotta love it. And, ah, uh, Francesca, you're gonna have a, quite a story of how you got your middle name for years to come. Our head slap of the week goes to Major League umpires, specifically. Bruce Dreckman, who made an embarrassingly awful call in the Red Sox-Nationals game on, uh, on Tuesday night. This call was so bad. How bad was it? Let's take a look. That call was horrible. I mean, when... The announcing teams of both sides, both the Red Sox and the Nationals, call this, and this is brutal. And something like this, you know, happening in August is not going to be that big of a deal. This happens in October, ooh boy, it's going to make the calls for automatic umpires or robotic umpires or an automatic strike zone get louder and louder. And Commissioner Rob Manfred might start to listen. Not like I really expect him to do anything with any kind of sanity, but head slap to Bruce Dreckman. What were you thinking? Now, without much further ado, let's go to the final word from the woods. Until the last edition of the Hoodwood about the U.S. Women's National Team having their worst finish ever at the Women's World Cup, getting bounced in the round of 16. You have the instant piling on by the wonks and the um, so-called experts saying that it was karma for their unpatriotic stances. They deserve, they got what they deserve because they weren't patriotic, they weren't standing at attention. And you had people talking about them being woke and their mentality and their activism was what brought them down. And you had these conservative wonks like Michelle Tavoya in, on Fox News then braying about this team was unlikable and hated in their own country and losing was the perfect comeuppance. You know, the thing that annoys me and that there are so many that are critical of athletes that say that they should be active in their community stand for things and be a role model. The only caveat is that they need to stand for the right things. And when they're flag-waving, USA-chanting, shiny, happy, feel-good activists, they are lionized and cheered by these same walks. But when these athletes are doing and saying things that are not fuzzy, not feel-good topics, 
that are bringing up social justice and calling for activism that aren't the fuzzy things in the neighborhood, they need to quote-unquote shut up and dribble. No one wants to hear this because we came to watch a game. When Colin Kaepernick knelt, he was ostracized, even though he first sat on a bench during the playing of the National Anthem and a former Green Beret that advised him to kneel, not sit. He was eventually run out of the NFL because he was an activist for social causes and he would not back down from his stance to kneel. Never mind that it's free speech and it was nothing more than a silent protest. There were too many people that did not like Kaepernick's stance and he was effectively blackballed from the NFL. I go to sporting events often and when the national anthem is played, I bow my head. I don't sing. Why? Well, one, because I can, got cut from the choir twice, once in grade school and once in college. But I choose to bow my head, silently reflect at the words, and, and at the final refrain of the home of the free, I raise my left fist. Now, I have taken shit for that at games, and I've had people tell me, you don't like our country, leave it. It's not bad at all. I love my country. But I will have a quiet protest of the words the land of the free because I don't feel like folks are truly free. They're not free to be able to express themselves. They're not free to live as they feel that they should. Now I've encouraged others who would just as soon sit during the national anthem to stand with me, head bowed, and raise their fists at the end of the song. It shows respect to the anthem but enough protest to be known. I understand being respectful of the flag and the national anthem. I'm not in favor of burning flags other than what is going to be respectfully destroyed when they are being retired. That said, I think that the fuss over what athletes do during the national anthem is incredibly overblown. I remember in the early 90s, the uh, former Chris Jackson, now known as Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, stood in silence with his head bowed doing a silent prayer. He was like Kaepernick before, uh, after some 20 some odd years after him ostracized and run out of the NBA. He did nothing but quietly protest. I think the fuss over what athletes do or don't do during the national anthem is incredibly overblown. To tie the performance of a team of how they acted during the anthem is silly. I thought the US women's national team were great role models for the women's game, and I think their loss was more to the fact that their opponents have closed the gap on them more than they anticipated. Not some sort of sporting and patriotic karma for not standing at rapt attention to the flag and singing along. That is a connection that is a bridge way too far, and that is the final word from the wood. Now with the music coming up in the background, you know that means that your time here in the Hoodwood is just about done. And I thank you so much again for your visit. Now the show's email is kjgreen at sportsfromthehoodwood.com. Please send me emails regarding show topics, both past and future, questions, comments on the show, and both praise and criticism. I welcome your correspondence and I will try to get back to you in a timely manner. The show's website is sportsfromthehoodwood.com, which has a back catalog of the show running almost 11 years in both audio and video form. So you can check that out if there are shows that you may have missed. You can join the debate and conversation on the Sports from the Hoodwood Facebook page, which also has the video podcast simulcast, as well as other topics, funny stuff I find on the web, 
plenty of other great sports debate and lots more. I post often and respond to member posts frequently. Video versions are also on YouTube. Please hit that subscribe and smash those like buttons for more great content. The link to the podcast is leaving Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it. We're moving tribal here soon. We'll have more details as that comes along. That's going to be, again, at Hoodwood Sports. It's going to have also a bunch of interesting stuff you can find there. You can comment to that, that uh, uh, facility and we will hit you back. Now, the audio version is on Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, iTunes, and Apple, and a host of other fine podcast platforms and providers. If the Goodwood is not on your favorite, ask for it. Drop me a line, and I'll see what I can do to get it there. As always, special thanks to Rage Pictures for providing production assistance to both the show and the website. That's it from the Hoodwood, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. And I'll make sure I'm saluting the right way. I got a comment on that. So it means I do respond to emails. Until next time from the Hoodwood, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm KJ Green, 30. Sports from the Hoodwood.